0: Welcome to the global community of IAOMS. This is Deborah Zabladil with our next installment of the IAOMS podcast series. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Sean Edwards from the University of Michigan. Thank you, Dr. Edwards, for being here. Thank you,
1: Deb. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Wonderful to have you. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your work at the University of Michigan, and then we'll get into some specifics. Oh, right.
1: oh, that's great. Um, so I am <clears throat> I am a uh, professor in uh, the Department of, mm-hmm. of Oral Facial Surgery at the University of Michigan. I've been on faculty there now since 2007. Uh, I have a, a little bit of a hybrid practice in that um, I'm an educator, as we all are in universities, but my practice is a blend between head neck. And pediatrics, and probably about 80% pediatrics, 20% neck oncology. When I finished my residency training, I uh, did both the pediatric craniofacial surgery fellowship and I did a neck oncology and microsurgery fellowship with a goal of creating a niche um, for pediatric problems mm-hmm. and their reconstruction, hopefully bringing a fresh perspective to some of the problems that are common for pediatric surgeons to see. The cool parts about my job, though, is not just the education that I get to do, but the research that comes in a a job like this. And being able to work with trainees and really energize students to try to answer some of the
0: tough problems of the day. Wonderful. Uh, And I want to talk more about the research that you do. Because um, as we were chatting prior to the podcast, you have so many interesting things to share. And one of the first things I'd like to ask you is... What do you think the basics are that any surgeon should know about research? That's a really great question.
1: So the most, you know, there's there's so many layers you can get into with research, and research means so many things to so many different people. Some people envision sitting in a lab and staring down the barrel of a microscope, or another person might see sitting with a clipboard and, and conducting questionnaires, but really, Research is something that guides what we do every single day. So if you're a clinician, you have to have a very fundamental understanding of the research that's going on that's informing your clinical decisions you make in the operating room or in, in your office. And so to that end, as we built our educational models at the University of Michigan, in the American Association, and for the International Association, we strive to have surgeons really understand the nuts and bolts clinical trial. So why clinical trial? Clinical trial is really the highest form of clinical research we can do. It's the most protected from bias. It's the most protected from decision-making errors. And so we try and take surgeons in their early phase of their career while they're training or students while they're learning and help them understand what it takes to choose a patient, include or exclude them how you randomize those patients and how you conduct statistics on on the results of your findings and then how you appropriately interpret those results so that the decisions you take, the lessons you learn, um, that you take away from the research you've done can be appropriately applied to patients. If we read research that's not well done or we draw incorrect conclusions, that can lead to us making decisions that actually hurt our patients. So when you ask me what is the minimum or the basics that everybody, mm-hmm. every surgeon should know, well, they need to interpret the clinical literature. They need to know how to do that well and they need to understand the flaws in the papers that are out there with the strengths of the ones that we
0: rely on. So what if uh, someone listening out there who's a surgeon doesn't feel that they have a good grasp of that, what would be a resource for them to go to? That's
1: a really good question and I would bet there's an awful lot of surgeons that are out there that are like that. You know, In the course of my training, my schooling started in the 90s. and the words that are very uh, routine today, like evidence based practice and evidence based medicine and dentistry, those just weren't part of my formal didactic education in undergraduate or dental school. It was starting to be when I was in medical school, but today it's routine. So there is a, there are a lot of surgeons, I would gather, who don't have those fundamentals. Of it. And so there's a lot of places you can get them, um, but they're not always that accessible. And that's something that we would like to change at the International Association level and um, make it available to all surgeons literally all over the world. Um, there are courses, many universities host courses on the basics and the fundamentals of clinical trial design. Um, we have, at the last um, five international congresses we, for the International Association, um, conducted a course on clinical research methods which is a really fun course, it's a day long event usually where we bring some speakers in and we present the fundamentals of the research and we walk people through the design and it really gives you a depth of understanding about why a study might get designed well or perhaps why a question just can't be asked or can't be answered with research or it's too expensive to answer with research. Um, but short of that, unless you're going to go get some formal education, These little easily digestible bits of information I think are few and far between and hard for people to access, especially if you're not connected to a
0: university. So what a great uh, platform to think about for IOMS and and other organizations, right? Um, And speaking of which, you are the semi-new research chair of the International Association, so tell us about what you're envisioning.
1: Well, that's great. Well, I have to say, I consider myself incredibly fortunate to be in this role, and very energized with all the all the good that can come from it. Education and research, I I think, is my main thrust. It's my main goal, and I would like to make it accessible for surgeons all over the world, trainees, senior surgeons, junior faculty, students, and I would like to make it easily digestible in our busy schedules. Twenty years ago. It wouldn't be unusual to expect people to take a week off of something they're doing and sit in a classroom for a week and just listen to lectures and then for them to be expected to go out and apply their learning. I think for a bunch of reasons we don't do that. Anymore. Societies change. We access information in different ways and I think we recognize that that's not a good way to learn. So as the chair of the research committee, um, we're looking at a variety of different ways to be able to present this information to people. For instance... Social media, what a great way for us to digest little bits of information. But also, what a great way to keep research in our consciousness. Imagine if you do that one-week course I mentioned, and you do it in July, but really the opportunity or the time availability doesn't show up for six months, well, all that learning is lost. And probably in the ensuing six months, you stop thinking about research, or you lose the the passion that you got from the course. So how about instead if once a week you get a little snippet on a clinical research tidbit, or an error in a clinical trial. And that way, research is just always on your brain. As you're going through your day, you're always thinking about it. You're always thinking about it. And I think social media is a really great for, way for us to do that. Social media is also really accessible. I mean, Smartphones are so um, everywhere these days that I think that that kind of a media is one way. i really love to get, um, get into the faces, get into the minds of our young faculty trainees to get them thinking about research. This clinical research methods course is something that's been such a good success. Um, uh, we've been running it as well for the American Association for more than a decade, along with some wonderful collaborators, and, uh, Steve Feinberg and Brad Ward, and Michael Moro now. And this is something that I would love to take to the next level. And to that end, we are beginning now with the generous support of the International Foundation and the Osteoscience Foundation, a formal clinical research fellowship. The first of those will be hosted with us at the University of Michigan. Where we will leverage the generous resources and research infrastructure of the University of Michigan to give a, a young faculty member a very immersive experience in the process of not just clinical research but also translational research. Translational research, I think, is near and dear to my heart because I've done some tissue engineering research. It's one of my fascinations. I think it's one of the things that's going to change surgical practice over the next few years and a few decades. But um, it's going to be really critical for surgeons to be involved in the research process, because when it comes to taking an idea from the bench or the animal model and bringing it into the global world, it's really only surgeons who have the insight needed to make that happen successfully and safely. And if we don't have an educated and informed surgical population, we're not going to be successful in it. Or worse, some other surgical discipline will pick up, that, um, pick up that torch and do it for us, which we certainly don't. So I think we have an awful lot to offer.
0: Oh, it's wonderful. Um, how did you get so interested in research, and how you know what drew you to it?
1: It's a great. That's a great question, and a little bit of a long story. and I'll do my best to keep it short. Okay.
0: So, Feel free to make it as long as you'd like.
1: <laughs> so, <clears throat> I am um, very fortunate to be the son of an oral maxillofacial surgeon. So my father uh, was in private practice in Eastern Canada, and uh, very bright, very hardworking. Um, great dad and a great person for me to look up to. And so it was enough of a, I can see his enthusiasm, but especially that it led me down the same career path. The next thing I ran into was academic surgery. And academic surgery was like an, an infatuation with me. I was, I was instantly drawn to it for a bunch of reasons. I loved the excitement that went along with research. I loved the lines of inquiry that went along with trying to solve problems. I love being at the vanguard of a new technology or a new disease or a new understanding of a problem. I love the camaraderie that it came along with the research. And, and that was a, a th- something I thought was pretty unique about academia. And that was something that was unique and, and, and uh, invigorating about research. Finally, I think we're all a little bit competitive, and probably surgeons, maybe more than some. Um, there's a little bit of a, of a healthy competitiveness that goes along with research. One group, perhaps one university against another, one trying to prove this way is better than the other in doing the steps that it takes to, to investigate that. So, my my fascination and enthusiasm for research was, was seeded pretty early in my career. Um, as I progressed through my training, uh, it was only more. I, I've been blessed to be surrounded by incredible mentors and. I had been so fortunate to be in environments where inquiry and debate and and sound investigations were paramount in training and clinical practice. As I went around the University of Michigan as a resident and as a medical student, as was at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia, the people that were held up as being the really special people in the university, they were the researchers. They were the researchers that founded the the way we did things. They set the the tone for what we should do. You could not just imagine that talent people to model yourself after. And so that further drew me down this down this road. As I um, then finished my residency and my fellowships and embarked on a path, clinical path to establish a, a clinical niche, um, I was surrounded on a daily basis with new questions. And one of the best parts of my job is that no day is like the last. Um, new clinical problems, new questions, new diseases, new technologies. And I feel like that I have the charge as an academic surgeon to figure out how best to use those and decide which ones are better or safer or faster or more cost-effective. Also, because I'm in the university, I'm surrounded by students, and you know, learning is one of those things that also needs research. And educational research has been fascinating because I love the mentoring process. I benefited from it my entire career. Continue to benefit from it, and learning how to be a better mentor and a better teacher is something that uh, excites me. Um, and selfishly, learning how to be a better teacher will make better oral surgeons, take better care of our, the patients that we see, and um, I, help, I hope help ensure the viability, long-term viability and success of our specialty, our great specialty, all my exhibition surgery. I've now had the pleasure of being in faculty for, I guess, 13 years now. So I've had 13 classes of residents, and how we teach in and, and what I would consider a relatively short period of time has changed dramatically. How uh, so? Um, in, in a lot of ways. Um, I think first of all we have a deeper appreciation of how we learn and how we retain facts. I think that we have a deeper appreciation of individual teaching styles. I think we have a deeper appreciation of um, how to evaluate a resonating their competence. The, the old models of C one, do one, teach one, that old surgical trope is is not even anachronistic is probably not even appropriate. It's not strong enough a word for how updated that model is. Um, our learners have changed, and one uh, of the I think wonderful things we've seen, and especially in world of maxillofacial surgery, over the last twenty years or so, is, is a change in our learners, and that we have more diversity. And so we have um, uh, we are starting to see a growth in the number of female residents, for instance, that are coming into surgery residencies, and um, and that's been a wonderful thing because that expands our talent, and um, and that talent will serve us all. Educational research. Um, is, uh, I think, a vital part of uh, especially, particularly the academic component especially, because um, if we teach people how to learn well, they will grow at a pace that's that's different than what it used to be. And so, um, residencies themselves haven't changed in their length in six years, but the number of things I have to teach my residents has changed a lot in six years. And so, what that means is we have to get a lot more efficient about how we teach and assess their learning Mm -hmm. and uh, push them along to the next level. The amount of oversight and that's present now in training institutions and training programs is an order of magnitude greater than what it was when I came through as a resident. And that also requires us to do a new, better job at teaching and assessing our residents. So um, understanding how to do that well, well that really just comes from education research. Which is more fun.
0: Do you find that, um, or are you aware of um, that different universities, different um, uh, facilities are really teaching very differently? Or do you think most of them are adopting new practices around how adults learn and different learning styles and, and assessment styles pretty much uniformly? Or do you see great variation in that? That's a, that's
1: a good question. I, th- I think there's still quite a bit of variation, <clears throat> Um As a little faculty we're asked to do a lot of things. And our time is always at a premium. We, we have families outside the hospital as well who need, who need our time and attention. and so. Um, there are we are fortunate to have some institutions who've developed really robust centers for research and learning on teaching um, CRLT programs where they do an awful lot to refine how we instruct and interact and interface with our adult learners Um, but that takes resources and and that's a lot of resources that smaller universities and smaller hospitals may not have Um, and I think the onus then is on those programs that do have those resources that do benefit from that kind of education that um, to promulgate those techniques to the rest mm-hmm. of the profession and you know what better way to do that than publishing in our literature mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> it's still it's still an imperfect science and there's still so many different learning styles and so many different teaching styles that there probably isn't anyone answer to how we do that um, but I think the effort needs to be on all our parts to get better at what we do and how we teach it, how we assess our
0: great. And and it would seem that an association, international association, would be the great equalizer potentially, if um, if that association can advance good education and education around research unilaterally across Absolutely. the world, right? Absolutely, great. Okay. Um, earlier, I thought this was really interesting. You had mentioned that you had done research around the profession and around satisfaction levels between Correct. men and women that go into oral and maxillofacial surgery. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh,
1: absolutely. So this this has really come along with my inquiry of mind about happiness and career choices, trying to decide why residents, who I thought would be wonderful academics and wonderful teachers, chose to go down a different career path, why um, one resident seemed happy and another one didn't, and then why you saw different levels of of satisfaction to surgeons in the community, in academia, and why some chose to continue to interact with the specialty and others chose to um, disappear. So I was very fortunate to have um, some wonderful people at the University of Michigan to work at. Reed Englehart is a PhD at our School of Dentistry who has a long uh, track record and career doing educational research and um, professional satisfaction work. And um, uh, another surgeon joined our group who was also interested in this as well, Dr. Tiki Marty. And so we started looking at the satisfaction that existed not just in our residents and our students. Um, We started then to start looking at um, all the different features of our trainees and our graduates that would determine their career satisfaction. We then broadened that out and started surveying nationally residents and practicing surgeons in academia and in private practice to try and get a sense of of what they were doing. Well, it turns out the residencies were not doing quite as well as we liked and especially with female surgeons, and I think this is a big problem. Um, if we look at career satisfaction amongst private practice and academic surgeons, there's mm-hmm. really not much difference between males and females. However, when we survey residents and their satisfaction, we do find a difference between males and female surgeons. Not so much in what they're doing, but really in their in their satisfaction with that and their overall happiness, and, and there we find that females are generally unhappy relative to their male counterparts. And I think that's instructive to us in that there's something about the culture or the structure of our residency programs that doesn't um, energize a female trainee to the level that a male does. And, um, and I think that's to our detriment because um, those that are excited about the specialty and all the challenges that it could present tend to go on and do more and contribute. And so, I think that's something that we. Um, need to look at harder, and we are doing that's our, our next our next line of inquiry with race satisfaction and career selection is um, the impact of gender, and background, and career focus, and
0: those kinds of things. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, did, so does the research suggest then that those women that are dissatisfied in residency programs or that are less satisfied, do they have a shorter career span or do they drop out or <laughs> Anything? That's a
1: great question and those are wonderful next lines of inquiry which we haven't been able to go through yet then. Um, those, I think some of that would have to come from some longer term data and some more workforce level data looking at general length of career, days in the office, those kinds of things. Definitely, something that needs to be queried. It is though something I think that's going to change. I, I think, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, the general profile of residencies has changed an awful lot and as we are fortunate to more females into the specialty of oral maxillofacial surgery, um, I hope that brings with them, like it has everywhere else in the world, a culture change that will make yeah. one that is more inclusive and more invigorating for everybody, regardless of background, gender, career focus.
0: Fantastic. Um, you mentioned mentoring before and that your father was an oral maxillofacial surgeon. So, obviously, I would assume he was one of your mentors um, and an inspiration to you. Absolutely. What about others? Did you have research mentors specifically?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, there's a concept in in the mentoring world of mosaic mentoring. And it's one that I love because I think it's probably the most reflective of reality. Um, As a a student progresses through their educational path, they identify people throughout their path who have behaviors they want to emulate. I think it's also reality, probably obvious to us, there really isn't any one perfect person. There's not going to be one person you can look at who's got the perfect work-life balance, who's got the perfect balance in their academic career, who's got the perfect balance in their clinical career. Rather, you will find people, as I did through my educational um, career, that there were people who I thought balanced different things really well, they did their research really well, they administered really well, they are great teachers, they are great surgeons, they are great people, they are great doctors, they are great dentists, so I can definitely point at many people along the way, and I would, I would say it starts with my father. Um, you know, from a work ethic, from uh, integrity, from honesty, um, from um, the enthusiasm he brought to his practice, and he would bring him home and show me. I think that really is what drew me um, down this path. Um, there were a number of fabulous uh, oral surgeons that I worked with at Dalhousie University as a dental student, Dave Precious, and Reg Gooday and Frank Lovely especially, and uh, Archie Morrison, these were guys that I looked up to because of their surgical skill, because of their confidence, and uh, people that I wanted to emulate in so many ways. I got to the University of Michigan, I had the same thing. <clears throat> I had uh, Joe Elman ahead of me, who a visionary planner and political wizard. I had Steve Feinberg, an incredibly talented and well-funded research mentor, somebody I could look up to, and how to organize um, a lab, and how to get people around an idea, and put in multi-center trials, account. Mm-hmm. I had, oh my goodness! I had um, different clinical teachers. Um, there was a, um, a, a, a patabiliary surgeon who I who I held a very high regard for his surgical discipline, but also his teaching style in the operating room. Uh, uh, Jim Knoll, and there was a, an endocrine surgeon, Paul Gager, who, whose efficiency and teaching style and general tone created in the operating room something I looked up to. There's there's just been so many people, and Mm -hmm. I I think that I've benefited measurably from all these people, and so I'm just incredibly fortunate to be where I am today.
0: It sure makes a difference when you have uh, great mentors in your career. And do you feel like you found them, or did they find you?
1: That's a, well, that's a great question. I think probably a little bit of both. Uh Um, Mentoring is a two-way street. Yeah. I think in so many ways, the mentor gains, but so does the mentee, and um, I love I love when I get the chance to work with my residents and, and sit down with them at the end of the day or sometimes outside of the hospital environment where we can sit down and talk about their career path and help them you know, think about what their job could be and how they could establish themselves academically, investigatively, clinically, how they could market themselves, how they can contribute to organized medicine and dentistry. Um, I just love that process, and and to be honest, I learn a lot from them, and especially because they are a generation younger than me now. And so, how they interact and how they think is different than how I think. And so, um, I think to between that, I think the uh, mentoring process, um, you know, these days is very normal in academic life for you to have a mentor formally appointed to, you. and um, and I think that there's a lot of merit in that process, but there's something different about the very organic connection that happens from the mentor you identify and from the teacher who looks at you and sees some promise and, and wants to you know, help you lift you up to that next level, that I think is extra special. And um, I had a number of those um, all along the
0: way. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, well, thank you so much. This has been uh, a really great conversation. I hope that, and I'm sure, that our listeners around the world now have, um, you've piqued their interest on, on research. And I'm sure they'll be looking to uh, what you're going to do with IAOMS and, and some educational products that will come out. And, and that's fantastic, I think, for everyone in every corner of our globe. So thank you so much for being here today and sharing your wisdom. Really you appreciate you it.
1: Can't wait to get started. I can't wait to start rolling this stuff out because it's so much fun. Thank Great.
0: You. Thank you, Dr. Edwards. Thank you once again for listening to the IAOMS podcast series. IAOMS members receive additional benefits such as access to the iJOMS, educational resources, reduced rates for conferences, and more. To join or renew your membership, please visit www.iaoms.org. Keep up to date with our weekly podcast by following IAOMS on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest news. See you next week.